Hello, friends, and welcome to But I Digest. My name is Hans Rufert. My name is Steve McDonough. Is that what we're doing? We're oh, saying our, I... our first name's really long? Did, did I... <laughs> we're Hans Rufert, and I'm Steve McDonough. No, it's good. Let's do that. Listen, Steve, you got me so paranoid about how I pronounce things after the Thanksgiving uh, debate. If you if you missed that episode, you have to go back and, and listen to that. Oh, I've already, um, I've already let that go. Uh, no, I have not. I'm still, every time I say anything now, I'm, I'm curious about where I'm putting the emphasis on the, each syllable. Which is uh, fine, because I really haven't let that go. That's a lie. Yeah, I, I knew that as much. I know you better than that. So if it is your first time joining us, you're wondering, what have I just tuned into? Uh, but I Digest is a uh, our podcast where we each episode we like to feature a specific food or ingredient, and then we squish through its sticky backstory, plunging through its seedy pulp to remove the choicest factoids and anecdotes. And our topic this week is a strange one, but it's a delicious one, and that is tamarind. Now, tamarind is, uh, you know, just because you might not have heard of this, please don't tune out because you are familiar with tamarind, even if you don't know that you are. Uh, and I love it. It is one of those ingredients that kind of it kind of works its way into a lot of different cuisines. Um, Steve, are you a, a fan of tamarind? Tamarindo? Absolutely. It's, it is a uh, sweet uh sticky but almost um not savory it's got that deep kind of sweetness to it nothing cloying about it so tamarind uh, i think pairs well in a lot of dishes yeah and it's got a little sour note to it and yes, uh, yes. again you, you might know it as tamarindo if you add an o at the end which is almost kind of a cliche you put an o at the end and it becomes a, a spanish word but really if you do put an o at the end it becomes tamarindo which is it's used a lot in latin american <laughs> cuisine but it is it is native to Africa, and like a lot of the kind of tropical foods we've talked about, they start in one country and then they become so kind of ubiquitous in so many different cuisines. It's in it, all throughout the Indian subcontinent, it goes into Latin America, and it really is this kind of a ugly bean-looking, uh, you know. Yeah, it's not attractive. No, the, the actual fruit that we're talking about is not attractive. It looks a little bit like Mr. Hanky, if you've seen uh, oh, South Park. Oh, no, I wasn't going to go there, but well, all right. you know, just a tad. Um, and it, it, But it is a beautiful tree, just because the fruit is a little ugly. The tree, um, it's called Tamarindus indica. And you, Steve, might have seen it at Walt Disney World, because they actually had some growing at Epcot by the Land Pavilion. Uh-huh. Uh, and also over in uh, in the animal kingdom thing, beautiful tree. It has these beautiful kind of buttery yellow flowers with little splashes of soft pink. Uh, and the wood itself is just gorgeous. And they use the wood um, for kind of finer woodworking things in those in those regions. Um, the, the leaves themselves are kind of feathery looking, look a bit like uh, a mimosa. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Not the drink, the mimosa, but, you know, the, uh, the yeah, tree, yeah, the that, Well, I mean, that's a beautiful leaf, the mimosa tree. No, I think it's gorgeous. So it has that kind of same kind of shape. And like I said, the, the, the part that we eat is this bean-shaped pod. And it's kind of funny because it is actually in the Fabiaceae family, not to get nerdy, but it is in the same family as a soybean. Uh, it's just the sort of in a tropical climate. It's not a, a plant that kind of grows and dies per season like the soybean. This is an actual grows into the tree. So it's kind of that that bean pod is, in fact, beans. And when you work with tamarind, so it's got these long pods and the outside of them is kind of crunchy, crumbly, and then just underneath that kind of thin, brittle outside shell is this really sticky pulp. And that's the stuff that we're after, right? That is the the part that is so delicious. Now, is, but, it, is it just like a kind of fibrous pulp? It's not circular and like beans. It's not structured. 
Well, correct. But there's there are beans in there. So there are three or four beans inside of there, but it's surrounded by this sticky pulp. It's almost like this protective huh. layer. And those seeds that you ultimately need to remove are edible. And in certain parts of the world, those are used kind of like how chicory can be used as a coffee substitute or as a coffee extender. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can actually take tamarind seeds and you can roast them and use them either as a coffee substitute or if you are short on coffee beans, you can kind of sneak those in there. So uh, and that those seeds can also be ground up and used as uh, like kind of like a flour substitute as well. So the whole pod or the inside of the pod is edible. Have you ever had it uh, as a coffee extender? Not that I know of. I'd but like I'm, to try that. I wonder yeah. if it adds like a dark sugar kind of uh, note to it. Well, that's a great point because that, um, that's the kind of unique thing about tamarind is it has this sour and sweet, but also slightly sulf sulfuric kind of a flavor like molasses or sorghum. Uh, and that's, I think, what we love about it. It has that little bit of a umami. I love to put yeah, a little bit yes, of molasses exactly, exactly. In, in a cup of coffee. Some molasses, I think, is out of this world. So you're right. I think that would kind of add those those notes to that. So before I get too far down our culinary path, which, of course, that's what we love to talk about, it has another use in the kitchen, uh, tamarind does. That pulp can also be used as a metal polish. Uh, and so in the kitchen, when you're trying to go through and kind of, you know, spritz up your uh, your antique uh, copper or your silver, it has in it tartaric acid, and that removes that uh, that tarnish from the outside. Now, I don't know at what point tarnish becomes patina. I, I love kind of old, slightly grungy kitchenware. I don't really trust overly shiny kitchenware. To me, it either it doesn't work or something there. But or someone's uh, not using it. Somebody's not using it. Exactly right. right. So I, I like a little bit of uh, again patina or tarnish. Uh, but to me, it was interesting that you can actually use um, tamarind as a as a metal cleaner. Uh, but let's get back on track with the flavor again. There's that sweet kind of sourness, and the texture of it is sometimes compared to dates. Um, mm -hmm. But to me. I think the description that kind of sang, you know, struck a note with me was if you took raisins, like really good raisins, and soaked them in lemon juice, like really good, almost like key lime juice, there's that tartness with that flavor of raisin. To me, that's kind of where it is. Then if you mixed in that sort of molasses sorghum syrup, um, that and depending on when you harvest the tamarind, the, the more green pods will be more sour. But as they age and turn brown, the uh, the sugars start to kind of mature and ripen and concentrate. And so you get a lot sweeter pulp. So typically when you buy it, you are buying them brown. I've actually never seen them green for sale. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I only I think probably more in tropical uh, areas. And Chicago is not quite tropical. And where I am is not tropical enough for, for tamarind. Um, now, so when you are working with tamarind, again, if you're buying the whole pods, you have this sort of task ahead of you, this chore of removing that pulp. That's really what you're after. Wait, and... I'm sorry. So you can buy the pods? Oh, like yeah, if absolutely. I was... Oh, yeah. okay. Because I don't know that I've seen them. I mean, there's so many markets here. I don't know that I've seen tamarind. I mean, I know what they look like. Sure. I don't know that I've seen them sold at, you know, like a Whole Foods type of market. But are they? Am I just... No, not typically where I looking. find them is in more of the ethnic grocery stores. So if you go to, oh, I don't know if yeah. you have. Well, we've got so many. Yeah, bodegas and all yep. of the, the That's uh, where you see Mexican them. supermarkets that we can certainly get in this part of the country. Or, or Indian supermarkets. There's one oh, uh, Indian right, supermarket. Oh, right, of course. We've got great Indian supermarkets in Chicago. That's where you need to go. There's one called Patel Brothers, and I think it's yeah. a oh, gosh, yeah. chain. So yeah. Patel Brothers does an amazing job of introducing me to all sorts of fun ingredients. I love to go in there. 
with an empty cart and an open mind and just let the market kind of, you know, guide me through there. But that's where you're going to find uh, fresh tamarind. Uh, and you'll find, again, those whole pods. Sometimes they're sold in boxes because they are so sticky. If they had them out in the open, they stick to everything. So you'll see them sometimes either <laughs> pre-wrapped. I mean, they do. They're they're uh, sticky fingers. Um, so you'll see them either in a cardboard box or you'll see them already wrapped in a plastic bag. And when you try to mess with it, the the outer shell, as I mentioned, gets brittle. And so the whole thing kind of turns into this just mess of seeds and broken shells and and pulp. Um, so you can, if you are on the lazier side of things, you can buy tamarind pulp that is already deseeded. And right. That's honestly that we have. That yeah. I think we usually have that tamarind paste. Yeah. yeah. Unless you're in the right. mood for a challenge, that's kind of what I would recommend to do. If you buy the whole ones, which are, again are they are delicious. That's that is in its purest form. You have to figure out a way, and usually you do it with your hands. You remove the outer seeds, and then you you make kind of a liquid. You just kind of soak the whole thing in hot water for several hours, and then you'll strain out the the now flavorful broth essentially, uh, and discard the solids. Or again, you can try to roast the seeds if you want to play with that. Um, so I'm I'm not uh, I'm not uh, advocating laziness, but really, if you want to just jump in and try this, I would say buy the buy the pulp. Easier to easier to mess with. Right, and um, that is what most professional chefs are going to yeah, do as well. No, hundred percent, hundred percent. So now that 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 sweet sticky pulp is used in all sorts of things. Now, when I go down to Ecuador and I'm heading down there in a couple months. There are so many different types of uh, tamarind candies, and I I love them. I mean, they're they have hard candies that'll have like that squishy, sticky paste in the center. They have these taffy style ones, which are already kind of this you know sticky, chewy ones. They have caramel esque kind of uh, uh, squares that are dusted with chili powder, and that combination of sweet and sour and spicy is out of this world. Um, but where we typically see tamarind used are in things like marinades, in chutneys, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, in beverages, and also in sauces, which uh, is kind of where I think most of us would know. We might not know that we know tamarind, but definitely when it comes to you know, sort of condiments, that's where we that's where we know our our tamarind. Yeah, and I can talk about the condiments. Um, why did what made you pick tamarind? Today, you and I haven't discussed this. Just out of curiosity. Well, I uh, was using Worcestershire, and that, or I don't even know if I'm pronouncing Worcester, Worcestershire <laughs> sauce correctly, but uh, was using it and just thinking, like, this is so good. And you know, you and I had talked about about that as a as a sauce, and uh, that's kind of what got me thinking about the. To me, the sort of hero of that is is the tamarind. That's the flavor that I love in there. Yeah, and um, it is probably the most important ingredient in the Worcestershire sauce. Um, and you and I discussed it a little, and so I began to think that maybe the Worcestershire Worc Worcestershire sauce <laughs> would be the uh, would be the hero today. And the more I dove into it, the more I realized it needs its own episode. Well, wow! We would really be selling it short if I were just to talk about it as a sidebar. It's got its roots in ancient Carthage with the Romans and along the Silk Road. And I just couldn't do it justice because there's all of this kind of fermented nerdiness that is right up your alley that I think you're you're really going to want. So we got to put a, a pin in the Worcestershire sauce bottle. No, that sounds good. We'll, we'll do that. a deep dive, a deep dive into the sauce. Into Worcestershire sauce. Well, one aspect in doing the search, though, involved me finding the difference between Worcestershire sauce versus HP sauce and then A1 steak sauce. Nice. So, you know that phrase, talk, uh, explain it to me, explain it to me like I'm five. 
Oh yeah, I hear that all the I time. I love that phrase because it really is where I am at this point in my life. <laughs> I'm like, just, you know what? I, I have no pride anymore. Just talk to me like I'm five and then we can move on. So here is my talking to everyone like your five explanation of Worcestershire sauce, of these sauces. Now, Worcestershire is a garum and a garum is a fermented fish sauce. So it's made from fermented anchovies with vinegar, molasses, and tamarind and spices. Now you'll usually use Worcestershire sauce in a dish as an ingredient more than you would use it as a condiment. And the flavor, flavor is, as you said, it's you know that umami, which was the key word that you used before, and acid and spice and salt. Now HP sauce is more of a condiment you know, like something like ketchup or, uh, or, or mustard. Now its base is tomato and tamarind, plus the malt vinegar and sugar and spices. A one sauce, uh, I thought I should look at that really quickly too, because I kind of think of them kind of similar um, because someone is probably going to email me and say, why don't you, you should have mentioned A1 sauce. So here, I'm saying it now, don't email <laughs> me. Uh, A1 is a brown sauce, just like HP is a brown sauce. It's thinner than the other ones because it's malt vinegar based with dates and mango chutney, hello, and spices. And I thought A1 was an American version of these English brown sauces. But in fact, A1 was invented by one of the chefs of King George IV. Wow. And it didn't make it till the US till the end of the 19th century. Now, A1, it lacks the tanginess of HP sauce because it lacks the tamarind. Uh. Gotcha. Tamarind. Since it's a tamarind episode, it has been disqualified. You're out. We're not talking about A1. <laughs> so I thought today we'd look at HP sauce because I really like a HP sauce. I use it a lot. I love it on eggs. Now it's a brown sauce. Uh, brown sauce is kind of a generic name. Like you would use ketchup or mustard. Not all brown sauces are HP, just like not all mustards are Dijon mustard. So it's hearty and it's tangy. It goes on all kinds of English savory pies and bangers and mash. Uh, I use it for breakfast, as I said. So the full English breakfast of sausages and that fat cut English bacon. It's great on eggs in the morning. If I'm just frying a couple of eggs and not having too much, you know, I'm not eating a lot of carbs right now. Uh, just trying to lose my COVID weight, which worked. Thank you for noticing. Um, <laughs> If, if I just have a couple of eggs and I put some HP sauce on it, it adds a whole depth of flavor. Um, and depth is really the right word because it adds a, a, like a weight and a hardiness to it that I find super satisfying. People put it in a bolognese sauce and you can just add a little to sour cream for a dipping sauce too. It's a pretty great uh, sauce. Now, the original formula was created by a grocer and his name was Frederick Gibson Garten in Nottingham in the late 19th century. He was brewing it in his backyard in copper cauldrons and selling it from uh, this hand-painted cart. He had written Garten's HP sauce on the side. Now, why is it called HP sauce? This is the lamest story ever, and I kept <laughs> hearing it over and over and over. I only heard one person argue, so I'm going to assume that this is true. He was selling the sauce and they were serving it in the Houses of Parliament. And so he named it HP for Houses of Parliament. He trademarked the name in 1895 and he put the Houses of Parliament right on the label. Now, if you've seen this bottle, it's, it's really distinctive. It's kind of square uh, and it had, a, he had, he had the words, uh, a, think, uh, excuse me, a thick digestive relish prepared from oriental fruits by a secret process. Wow. 
A digestive relish. It's I don't know that that's something that would pop to my mind, but sure, it works. So he's doing pretty well. He's finding success as a saucier, but he wasn't doing so great with his finances. And around the turn of the uh, 20th century, he falls into debt with the Midlands Vinegar Company, because, of course, as we said, this is mainly a vinegar based sauce. You you could say things went sour. (laughs) Oh, that would be good. You you are saucy, aren't you? (laughs) So uh, Samson, Edwin Samson Moore, who's the founder of the Midlands Vinegar Company, he comes, he comes over to Garten, who can't settle his debt, and he makes him an offer. He goes, you know what? Give me the rights to your HP sauce recipe. I will forgive your vinegar debt, and I'll even give you another 150 pounds. So he takes that. Now, there's a book called The True Story of HP Sauce. I think you, I see it behind you. Is that on your bookshelf? <laughs> the True Story of HP Sauce? Yeah, it's the, uh, it is the advanced reader's copy. It's an old, old one. <laughs> so his son, Garten's son, said that his dad was a kind, proud gentleman, obviously no match for Samson Moore. So he said that his dad struggled after he sold the sauce recipe, um, and that, the quote, the subject of HP sauce was forbidden at home. The old man would never have a bottle in the house. Isn't that sad? I mean, here he, he developed this recipe, and he spends the rest of his life kind of being taunted by it. Sour. He was sour. You couldn't even you couldn't even let me have that nice moment for Mr. Garden. <laughs> no, that so, is sad. I because uh, he should be proud of it because uh, yeah. And you know what? Don't funny? come up with emotions now after you just kicked <laughs> Garden while he was down. What, uh, what's, your, what's your sad emotions for Mr. Garden? Come no, on. I, I feel I feel bad for him. That is, I mean, he should be absolutely proud. It should be something that the family should be proud of. And you know, in in the here in Georgia, I don't think if I were to ask a hundred people if they'd heard of HP sauce, I don't think the three of them would. Uh, but it is really good. They should. So I'm excited. Yeah, it is, it is yeah. really good. It truly is really good. Now, uh, John Garton, the son, he explained that the document that his dad had to sign in 1899, it gave away not only all of his rights to the recipe, but his rights to pursue any trade connected with sauces or chutney. But this guy, talk about a true Englishman. He can't sell sauce. He can't sell chutney. So how does he make his living? He sells Stilton cheese Nice. So he made a name for himself. Like, I mean, what else could he have done? He could have sold Mary Poppins umbrellas and been a little more English. I mean, he pretty much was like the most English salesman ever. And, and very pungent, like everything that he was uh, yes. was making there. I mean, those are some woofy, strong kind of things happening there. He was a stinky fella. Oh yeah. So he began the um, so he began the industrial production of the sauce from his plant in Aston, which is in Birmingham. Now, that's remember I said it was the Midlands Vinegar Company. This is the Midlands, uh, that, that center area of, um, of England near, in Birmingham. So by 1925, the Midlands Vinegar Company changed its name to HP Sauce Limited because it was going along so well. So as I said, Aston is a suburb of Birmingham. And here are some very loud, connected people from that area. They, they this, These are four people that were born within six miles of each other. Are you ready? Ozzy Osbourne and all of the original members of Black Sabbath, Blaze Bailey from Iron Maiden, David Pegg of Jethro Tull, and Rob Halford of Judas Priest. Damn. Like these, all of these loud, hard, hard rock singers all came from the same area. So here's my quiz. Which of these people that I have mentioned can scream the loudest? 
Oh, I, I've seen Rob Halford in, in concert. He can scream. I'm going to go for Rob Halford. Wrong. The answer is my mother. It is a trick question. My mother grew up in this area as well. She grew up. Oh, man. I love that. Oh, my. Oh, you love it. Wait till the phone call I get. Oh, yeah. Um, Stephen, you told everyone I screamed louder than Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> I demand you delete the podcast at once. Yeah, she grew up one mile away from, from this area as well. Is it, I, I wonder if that, you know, there's that very British expression of piss and vinegar. They're like, oh, they're full of piss and vinegar. Have you heard that? Like I if somebody, have. yeah, I think that's, uh, I like that expression. And I didn't realize that vinegar was a, was a UK kind of a thing, but uh, it seems like this is the, well, yeah, the absolutely. Area. A UK thing. It's also that kind of Indian flavor too, right? Yep. Isn't it? Um, yeah, that, that, yeah, vinegar they is used a lot over there. I just think that's, I, th I also just love the taste of vinegar. I mean, oh, me salt, too. vinegar, potato chip. Love it. Perfect. Uh, all right. So anyway, the HP factory, it's considered a landmark in Birmingham with its, uh, it's got this distinctive sign that goes above these rows of very industrial row houses that hundreds of workers are living there. Now, as I'm doing this research, I would keep seeing that, you know, in the old HP sauce in Birmingham had their vinegar pipeline. Anyway, and I'm like, hold, 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 hold the phone. It had a what? It had a what now? Yeah, had a vinegar pipeline. Yeah, is, what, that what a, a, is that an analogy or is it an actual yeah. pipeline of vinegar? So I'm like, all right, somebody needs to do a little more research into this. So HP was built on an estate of land. And in the middle of the 20th century, they built a highway that went right through the middle of the factory land. So the, the, the uh, factory itself is bisected and they can't get the vinegar from one side of the factory to the other side because there's a highway running through the middle. So they erect an aerial pipeline from one section of the factory to the other. This pipeline runs over the highway and it carries vinegar. Wow. I know. Wow. I loved that. I love so, that too. So vinegar is like the primary ingredient, HP sauce. And now the scale of production is industrial quantities, right? So by the 1950s, the factory has huge vats of this deep brown vinegar, and each one can hold a bus. They're about 20 feet high and three feet thick. So this is where I'm going with this story. Picture this, Aston, Birmingham, the 28th of December, 1956, that quiet week between Christmas and New Year's, and it is the night of the great vinegar flood. <laughs> so one of these metal vats bursts and it sends 15,000 gallons of vinegar rushing out of the factory and streaming down the streets of Aston. Now, you, I know people are like driving their car going, here comes Steve, he's going to be exaggerating. I, people, you stop it and listen to me right now. <laughs> I'm going to give you three quotes from three separate newspapers. The Birmingham Mail, the vinegar swept into homes, flooded cellars, and carried furniture along Tower Road before pouring down hill into Aston Road nearly a quarter of a mile away. Wow. The Evening Dispatch, a waist-high wave of vinegar swept across gardens and houses. Cellars were flooded and furniture floated on the tide. Wow. The Daily Mirror, one vinegar-besieged resident sealed the gaps under her doors with rolled up carpet, but the Brown River found its way into her house by bubbling up through the bathtub squirting onto her floor. God. 
I can't I, even imagine. This is like something from a uh, like a Roald Dahl kids book or something, you know, like James the Giant Peach and the Great Vinegar Flood, that that actually happened. That's amazing. Exactly. In fact, Mrs. Doris Jenny at number 173 said, I kept thinking it must be a dream. There was a roar, and the next minute there was something like a lava stream running through the house, said Mrs. Violet Farmer next door. So neighbors were running outside with mops and brushes to sweep it away, and kids were filling up jugs like a fireman bucket brigade. So I called my mom, who's not speaking to me anymore because I said she's louder than Ozzy Osbourne. I called her, and I'm like, Mom, do you remember this? But she had moved. This was 1956, and uh, she was... I think she uh, she had already started her move. She wasn't living in Birmingham anymore. And I can't believe like she was like, no, I haven't heard of this. Well, she has an alibi at least. So it's not her fault. We know that. She was established. Yeah, she had an alibi. So that's good. But I think my favorite part of going through this podcast and researching is finding like these Reddits and these old forums where people are giving you real information rather than just a website. Right. And that's what I really loved about this one, in particular, this Birmingham Forum from 2008, just locals giving historical first person anecdotes, talks of cutting off of the brand because, yeah, spoiler alert, HP ended up closing the factory and moving and that people lost their jobs. So they were pretty unhappy about it. But here's a couple of quotes from the forum. My uncle Norman worked there most of his working life as a carpenter. He used to bring us the brown sauce, which he did not like. Hmm. I do remember some years back, they had a problem with the vinegar pipeline that ran over the Aston Highway, and there was a leak that took the paint off of the cars that passed under the oh, pipework. Wow. <laughs> and this guy, the delicate scent of a brewery is perfumed to my senses, but the pong from HP sauce I found nauseating, especially on a hot day. I was still angry when they closed it, though. The smell of hops and vinegar were sickening, but it was home. Oh, I do not use the word pong correctly or often right? enough in that context. That's brilliant. I have learned this is my favorite episode so far. I'm going to use right. the word pong. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently compensation followed quickly from the sauce. People got new carpets. So the sauce is an English institution in the 1960s. They were even calling it Wilson's Gravy after the prime minister, Harold Wilson, because his wife gave an interview to the Sunday Times. And she said, if Harold has a fault, it's that he will drown everything in the HP salt. Uh, and in the mid 1970s, Gilbert O'Sullivan, do you know him? He sang um, Alone Again, Naturally. Claire, oh. the moment I met you, I swear. No, really? No, I don't He's know. He's a 1970 singer. You don't know was, Alone Again, Naturally? It's a super in, depressing song. I was born in 1972, so it's a little fuzzy in that uh, that kind of so, time So frame. That, does that mean that I shouldn't know anything that happened in the 1920s? <laughs> no, did, but I Did don't. history start when you were born, Hans For me, Rupert? yes. For me, it did, yes. From oh, that point true. forward. Well, he has a song called As Long As I Can that says, to point out that despite its faults, England still has HP sauce. And I don't know about the rhyme between yeah, sauce and faults. It's an approximate rhyme, I guess. But hey, maybe he got, uh, maybe he made a little kickback every time the song played from HP. A free bottle of sauce for every uh, every time the record spins. Well, that was Gilbert O'Sullivan, which should not be confused with Gilbert and Sullivan. Do you know who they are? Uh, I feel like they wrote musicals, which means I know they nothing wrote about musicals, them. Which means today we are leading up to. Oh no! <laughs> Stop that straight guy! Oh my God! Did I have to reach for this one when I saw Gilbert O'Sullivan? I'm like, okay, I'll do Gilbert O'Sullivan. Yeah, I was—I didn't think there were any tamarind-based musicals. <laughs> I couldn't uh, find one. Okay, Gilbert one. and Sullivan, the operatic kings. 
This operetta, probably their most famous, premiered in New York City, not England, which surprised me, in 1879, where the lead finds out that his indentured servitude is not ending because he is, in fact, not 21. He was born in leap year, which means he has another 63 years before he reaches the age of 21. In this musical, in this operetta, uh, the song's Poor Wandering One, the Major General's song, and my favorite, with cat-like tread. And the musical is... I have I have no idea. And I see the last time I said your your hints were too good. Now I have absolutely no idea whatsoever. Yeah, you can suck it, Hans Rufren. <laughs> Tell me my 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 clues are too easy. Well, when I got two in a row or two at least two in the same decade, I thought that was I was doing pretty good. But once again, you I did. feel completely lost and uh, uh, so no, you're going to have to all right, to. folks, this stumped the straight guy. Go to our Facebook page. We get to play again because Hans did guest last week, which was the School of Rock. He managed to guess that with my Joan Cusack impression. I think that's what gave it away. Go to our Facebook page and tell us what this probably most famous Gilbert and Sullivan operetta is with cat-like tread. All right. So going back to HP Sauce, it was purchased in 2005. Heinz purchased the entire company. And a year later, Heinz made a big announcement that it was closing the Birmingham factory one year after purchasing it. And they transferred the production of the HP Sauce away from England and into the Netherlands. Now, that's a kick in the teeth, right, for this very English sauce? Yeah, it seems. So when the when the Birmingham factory closed in 2007, they lost you know well over 100 uh, jobs. Um, and it ended a more than 100 year tradition of making sauce at the site. They even, uh, there was a, a group of protesters who held a wake. They put empty HP bottles in a coffin. And um, I think in general, a lot of people argue that the sauce doesn't taste the same anymore. And there could be two reasons for this. Uh, one is that the water in the Netherlands is not gonna have the same mineral qualities as the water in England. I mean, that's why they say the bagels are different in New York than other parts of the country. It's one of the reasons they say. And the second that was in 2011, uh, Heinz was forced to adjust the recipe because we have new standards now on salt levels in food. So some people don't like it as, they don't think it's the same. Well, you know, the water in that part of uh, of Birmingham has to be slightly acidic from the flood of vinegar that uh, that washed over that land. So every time it rains, you get acid rain trickling through the earth and then being used <laughs> literally. Uh, yeah, into literally. The, the aquifer. So, yeah. Isn't that a crazy story? Waste high wave of vinegar. I'm like, come on. Uh, listen, I feel, it reminds me, though, that I feel like there was a great molasses flood up your way. Hans, Rupert, there is a molasses flood. I did not do the research on it because a couple people were like, wait a minute, are you talking about the vinegar flood or the molasses flood? I'm like, no, oh, I, the fun, there's more than one? Oh, yeah. So when we when we do our episode on molasses, oh, excuse me, molasses, <laughs> um, I will we'll have to we'll have to do the comparison of the uh, molasses flood and see who who's who was uh, waist high versus knee high. Um, but food floods uh, could be its its own uh, separate podcast. But uh, that was the first thing that came to mind. I had I had heard about that. And that sounds frightening as well. But we'll save that uh, that one for another day. All right, then let's speaking of food, let's jump into our recipes. The only thing that's hotter than the oven is watching you cook. All right, perfect. Listen, I think the thing that first made me aware of tamarind was at an Indian restaurant. Now, 
I have I grew up loving uh, HP sauce, Worcestershire sauce. Uh, another one called Pica Peppa. If you ever had Pica Peppa, has yes, uh, I have has tamarind in there. I think we tried that in in Jamaica when I was a kid. We were traveling. We even brought some back. But I didn't know that tamarind was the thing that I loved about it. So my first kind of aha eureka moment was at an Indian restaurant, and you know. If you a guy from Jasper, Georgia, we don't have that many outlets for Indian food. So went to Atlanta and was lucky enough to go to a really good Indian buffet. And the great thing about that is you have the opportunity to try multiple things without having to commit to a lot of things. And they always have these different chutneys and salsas or sauces. Um, and they have bright green ones and bright yellow ones. And some of them will burn the taste buds off your tongue because they're so spicy. But the one that just was a wow moment for me was this sticky brown syrupy sauce that was labeled tamarind chutney and it is everything that i love about tamarind it is sour it is sweet it is so good as a dipping sauce where you can take and you know dip your little um you know bitefuls into the sauce or to drizzle it and i even like to use it cross cultural cuisines and i love tamarind chutney on spicy latino food so like a like a spicy fish taco uh, and you and you do find tamarind in in latin american cuisine as well but the the use of a chutney so i'm going to share a chutney recipe uh, i love making chutneys when i have overripe fruit but for this one of course you're going to need that tamarind uh, so i'll i'll do a little tweaking i'm going to do an, an easy one for you so it's not intimidating but it's the kind of thing that you'll love to have on hand no matter what you're eating. I think um, Americans are, you know, we don't use a lot of chutneys here. And the heat and the vinegar that you get from a chutney is unlike any other type of relish. I think that we should think about that as an episode once. No, I think that's you've already idea. just given away your, you're, you're not going to be able to do another chutney recipe. So you better. No, I will because they're, they're so different. And, and that's the great thing too, like a mango chutney versus an apple chutney versus yeah. a, a cilantro chutney. And they don't have to be crazy intense heat. It's finding that balance between the, the hot, sour, sweet, salty, you know, there's, yeah. that's the great thing about them. So oh, we got plenty to talk about. I love that mm, idea. Um, that sounds great. Um, I'm going to stick with something that you said. You were talking about uh, that tamarind was also found in some of the Latin American Latin American countries, and it is in Mexico. And there is a soda called Yaritos that Love makes it. a tamarind soda. So I want to do a paloma. This is something that we used to do at my restaurant. It could not be simpler. Now, a paloma, I'd like to say that paloma is what Mexicans are drinking when the tourists are drinking a mango margarita. Mm. Uh, if you went to possibly your, your your friend's house and he's of Mexican heritage, on the table will just be a bottle of tequila and a bottle of grapefruit soda, squirt. There's nothing fussy. There's nothing fancy about it. It's just like, like a rum and Coke. It's the same thing. It is the tequila and the squirt. Now, there's a couple of different things that I like to put in it that, you know, is, is not unusual. Um, some people will rim their glass with a little salt, which I think is also the wrong thing to do, I, from what I understand. Uh, generally, what you want to do is just put a little pinch of salt directly into the drink. It doesn't go around the rim. It just goes right into the drink, as well as some lime. Now, I was making it with Yaritos um, tamarind soda because it's giving us that sweet and sour punch that we were talking about. Yaritos is a soda made in Mexico. It's made with fruit flavors. It's less carbonated than other sodas. The uh, creators wanted to make it inspired by agua fresca, which is fruit, um, water, and sugar. They are known as a company for sourcing their fruit responsibly and locally. 
and they sweeten it with natural sugar versus high fructose corn syrup. So it's basically like the national soft drink of Mexico if you exclude Coca-Cola. And again, in Mexican, Mexican Coke, they use real sugar as well as opposed to the high fructose corn syrup. Have you had one? Oh, I love them. And, and it's always so frustrating that yeah. I live in the shadow of the Coca-Cola empire uh, just outside of Atlanta. And I have to buy Coca-Cola imported from Mexico to buy, quote unquote, real Coke, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we did. Yeah. I mean, you're so close to it, but yes, everybody. But then they also get the better bottles. So um, Yoritos started in about 1950s uh, and their first drink was coffee flavored soda. So they were really way ahead of the curve doing a coffee soda. And then they branched into the fruit flavors, mandarin and strawberry and guava, pineapple, uh, hibiscus, passion fruit. They do like really interesting sodas and they developed a process to remove the tamarind juice extract. So they made the first tamarind flavored soft drink in Mexico, the tamarindo. Um, and like I said, I was, I, I it might be in my, it might be in my book, the new old bar, which you can, which you can get online by the way, on our website. But I know that I served it at the, at the uh, restaurant and we were just calling it a, a tamarind paloma and it couldn't be easier, but it's got that little bit of deeper flavor that is uh Super delightful. It sounds delicious. And you know what I think would be good to rim that cocktail with was that we've talked about it before, that tahine. Um, yeah. You know, tahine has got that little bit of spicy. That would be a good combination. Um, I love the combination of spice with uh, tamarind. But speaking of haritas, I have to give a quick little anecdote. So my daughter, Ella, does concert photography, and I'm super proud. Uh, and she's she's now doing them all over the country. And she got invited to come shoot this big music festival uh, in, uh, in San Francisco. So she went out 18 years old by herself to San Francisco. This is her big independent moment. And she's being all, you know, continentally international. And she goes... And gets a, a plate of pupusas, uh, which is oh, her yeah. favorite uh, Latin American cuisine, with a bottle of Jaritos Tamarindo, like the tamarind Jaritos. And she goes outside to eat and realizes, oh, I can't open this bottle, but was too embarrassed to go back into the restaurant and say, please, gonna have a bottle opener. So she thought, okay, I'm just gonna, you know, smack this thing on some hard surface and pop the top. Well, two days later, and apparently <laughs> forty tries. So there are there's a there's a walking tour now in San Francisco of all of the furniture and concrete that she chipped with this impenetrable <gasps> bottle of Haritos. Uh, and she literally texted me, which was ended up being about you know two in the morning our time, saying I can't find a ride back to my hotel, and I'm walking around with this Haritos that I've carried around for six <laughs> hours that I cannot open. Uh, but finally, the next day, she uh, she went into a random restaurant and said, this is a weird question, but can I borrow your bottle opener? So uh, now every time I have a Haritos, that's that's the story I'm thinking about. It is a horror story. <laughs> nice. The only thing that's hotter than the oven is watching you. So if you want to see these recipes, go to our website, budidigestpodcast.com. Don't forget that that is where you can get some of Hans's spices sent to you, and you can download a copy of my cocktail book or buy two of the other cocktail books in time for the holidays. Get your, get your orders in with that. If you'd like to email us, budidigestpodcast at gmail.com, Twitter and Facebook, budidigestpod, Instagram, budidigestpodcast. Uh, special thanks to our web designer, Hewitt Rabel, to our editor, Natalie DeChico, special music by Corey Goodrich, and our theme music is Brian Reyes. Hey, listen, I uh, I love the community that is building on our social media, and we have people with all their fun little stories and, and uh, anecdotes. And I put out a challenge uh, during the Cranberry episode uh, called hashtag Bounceberry, 
and uh, we did some slow-mo video of, of cranberries bouncing, which they do. But I want to give a quick shout out to we have two young fans that took the time to show us the difference between cranberries bouncing versus blueberries kind of not bouncing. Uh, and I, I heard tell that the cranberries were found uh, much later in the crevices of that kitchen, but uh, it made my heart uh, smile to see that video. So big shout out to, to those our young fans there. They were adorable. It was a cranberry party. Are we done here? We are done. 